We Have Issues is a weekly podcast full of reviews of comics and oversharing. We use grown-up language to make very childish jokes. You can find the show at wehaveissues.net, as well as anywhere else where average to not too bad podcasts can be found. Welcome to episode 119 of We Have Issues. Uh, If this is your first episode of the show, uh, this is a podcast about comics. The gimmick, it's not really a gimmick, it's just sort of an ethos, but the ethos is that we tend to mainly talk about comics that, that we want to recommend to you, rather than, you know, just reviewing everything so that we can slag loads of stuff off. That doesn't mean we're 100% positive all the time. I, in particular, am am a miserable, miserable man. Uh, probably more of that later. But, uh, but yeah. Yeah, hopefully you'll come away from an episode of We Have Issues wanting to read stuff, uh, that, that you'll, uh, you'll get excited about. Uh, this is, I think, going to be a pretty good episode. Sometimes we do studio episodes. Uh, where there's a few of us in a studio, uh, a lot of the time it's uh, me talking um, here at home on my own, lonely, and uh, and uh, and then a bunch of contributors from around the world, uh, mainly the world of Great Britain, um, who are actually much more upbeat than me and uh, much more enthusiastic about comics. And talk about various things. And we've got a few of them this week. So that's all very exciting. If you're a long time listener of the show, you'll know we've been on quite a long hiatus. Uh, that wasn't because of you. And it wasn't because of comics. It was entirely about my aforementioned misery. Uh, I was, I was struggling. <sighs> but it's all, I mean, you know, but, but we're here and it's good. Feeling a little bit rusty actually. Uh, how do I do, normally do this? What do I normally do? Oh, ah, yeah. So uh, it's customary when doing a podcast to introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Nick. Uh, basically, uh, uh, the more tired I get, the more I look like Salman Rushdie. And I, I don't mean the Salman Rushdie back when he was spitting satanic verses and he was young and virile and looked sort of diabolically rakish uh, with lots of like a bushy hair and eyebrows and stuff i mean uh uh uh, salmon rusty now who's sort of grown out of those diabolical eyes and uh and sort of looks like a increasingly uh more grumpy um and evil wizard that that's what i look like when i go to the toilet in the middle of the night which is when i'm recording this um and I look at myself in the mirror while I'm sat on the toilet because we, I don't know why we've got a mirror that like, I mean, I don't know. It's just how the house is designed. Um, that's what I look like. I feel like Salmon Rusty's staring back at me, but a much poorer, less successful Salmon Rusty. I feel like we're off to a cracking start. Anyway, so, uh, this podcast is Patreon supported. Uh, you can uh, find out more about that by going to patreon.com uh, forward slash TOTP. 
um, and that helps cover hosting and also helps us support uh, our friends who want to do podcasting stuff themselves. There's a little bit of that going on. Nothing I can really announce very much right now. This uh, podcast does come out from uh, the other 10% website, but at the moment it's one of only two things that do. The other thing is Hello Newman, which is a uh, podcast about Seinfeld by uh, my uh, podcasting husband or wife, my podcasting spouse, James, and our friend Steve. And that's very good, if you like that sort of thing. I'm not really a fan of Fraser. It doesn't matter, it's not about comics. Um, there is a Facebook page, uh, and actually there's a Facebook group, which I'm trying to get off the ground. If you search for We Have Issues on Facebook, you can find it. As I said, I'm Nick, uh, Nicholas Papaconstantinou, and I'm on Twitter at Nick's site. There is a Twitter for We Have Issues at IssuesPod, and that's where I tend to tweet stuff about comics. Hmm. What else, what else? Oh, yeah. If you like what we're doing, as well as uh, supporting us on Patreon or telling your friends about us, all of those are really, really good things. Those are very lovely things. Um, it, it'd also be good if you'd talk to us online. I did mention the, the uh, Twitter account and the Facebook account, but also each of the contributors um, that you're going to be listening to in a little while, if you stick it out, uh, have like they're all on Twitter or or on va- various social networks. They all do different uh, things, creative things on the internet or writey things on the internet. Uh, and it's worth seeking them out and telling them that you appreciate what they do. I personally love them all to ver to varying degrees. I've got I've got favourites. I'm not going to pretend I don't. Everyone's got favourites. So anyway, I'm going to let you talk to them. No. Wrong. I'm going to let them talk to you. And, uh, and, uh, at the end, I will, uh, pop back and, and talk to you about a Will Eisner book that I've, uh, that I've read. It's one of the only comics I've read recently because I've been miserable and there's nothing like reading about, uh, depression here in New York, really, when you're miserable. So, uh, first up is, uh, David Wynn. David Wynn did our music. Uh, the music that you heard at the beginning, he's uh, the uh, artist on the much more successful than us, uh, Jay and Miles Explain, the X-Men. He does the episode art for that. He's a comic artist who does Unsworn. He'll tell you about all of this. He's a shameless self, uh, self-promoter. And uh, basically, when I think of David, I think that if this was a hospital drama, he'd be the um, sort of uh, slightly dangerous looking, but handsome, like really handsome uh, maverick, uh, doctor who's, uh, ended up doing penance down in the ER, but, but really he's been a surgeon and he's done all of these different things and he won't pay attention to rules. He understands all the rules. He knows all the rules. But, uh, but, you know, sometimes the job requires that you just ignore the rules if you're really going to do it properly. Uh, if you're going to save lives or talk to people about comics, sometimes, uh, sometimes you just gotta like smash through those rules and break some heads and, uh, stick it to the man and all of those things. And that's, uh, that's, uh, the role, uh, in this analogy that I think, uh, I think David, um, David fulfills. Uh, in this analogy, I'm the, the quirky, uh, the quirky hospital administrator. You know, I make sure 
uh, things uh, keep going. And people respect me. Uh, people respect me, but I've got to make sure this hospital runs and, and isn't constantly under siege from lawsuits and, and stuff like that. So, uh, of course, sometimes, sometimes David and I will, uh, will, uh, will, uh, uh, bump heads, even though there is that romantic tension, uh, because I'm the one who has to keep him in check and he's the one who's constantly trying to break out check. I'm the one who's saying, Damn it, David. Contributions are meant to be under five minutes long. Otherwise, it's just too long. And I can't, I can't run this podcast if, if contributions become longer than five minutes long. And, uh, and, and David's like, but sometimes I can't get all the talking about comics I need to get done in just five minutes. Damn it. I'm not going to let this patient die. And I'm like, well, I don't like it, but you do get results. Uh, but then all of the other contributors or surgeons, sorry, sir, uh, all of the other ER doctors and nurses, they're watching you and they're learning techniques from, from you, David. And, and so they start slipping outside of that five minute five minute bounds and and it's just it's just endless chaos but god damn it if this isn't the best run comic podcast er um in uh in the country i'm proud of what we do even though it's infuriating and and i think i think everybody uh in the er respects me um even though you know i'm because i you all know that i've got the medical training but i'm just an administrator and i get it i'm the one who who uh who has to make the tough calls and um and um i think i've got a bit lost somewhere i'm gonna let uh david talk now hello david Wynn here cartoonist uh i work on unsworn read unsworn at unsworn.tumblr.com welcome back i have missed the podcast terribly i'm so glad we're back i'm really looking forward to listening to this episode even my terrible contribution that is starting now i thought for this contribution for the first episode back after all this time away a good thing to do would be to give a kind of summation of where i'm at with my current comics reading and i also thought a good way to do that would be to basically rip off an idea from Maxi Barnard from a little while ago and just kind of run through my current Comixology subscriptions. I'm, there are 18 of them, so I won't talk about them in too much detail, but I'll just give you a quick run through of what they are. And you know, So, first of all, Excel by Joe Casey and Damien Scott. Uh, this is part of the um, Catalyst Prime superhero universe from Lion Forge. Um, the other titles in this line include Superb and Noble. Uh, Catalyst Prime is, is a line edited by Joseph P. Illage, it's kind of uh, trying to bring forth the spirit of the old Milestone universe, uh, you know, very much uh, centering um, people of colour, both behind the scenes and also on the page. Um, I'm a big fan. Um, Excel is the only one I'm currently subscribed to. I, I, I'm realising doing this. I need to subscribe to the other two. Um, if you like uh, Joe Casey, if you like Damien Scott, you will like Axel. That seems like a reasonably obvious thing to say. If you don't know who Damien Scott is, he used to do uh, Batgirl uh, during the Cascane period. Um, he he's much in the he's very graffiti influenced, very much in the same sort of vein as like a Chris Bacalo and Eric Canetti, you know, Scotty Young, that kind of very stylized, very kinetic sort of work. Uh, perfect for Excel, which is a comic book about a, a sort of a, a super speedster. 
Um, a young, a young guy who can, who, yeah, he's a super speedster. What else can I say? Um, being Joe Casey, it's quite psychedelic. It's very fast moving and kind of crazy. Uh, I really like it. It's good. Uh, Batwoman by Marguerite Bennett and Steve Epting. Um, is a uh, kind of a, a James Bondy sort of uh, globe trotting espionage take on Batwoman, which works really well. Uh, Steve Epting's art obviously really suits that. You know that's what what he's always done, really, isn't it? Um, uh, Marguerite Bennett is br- is a brilliant writer. Um, there's a, a, a strong sort of romance element, but that's that's usually there in that kind of story, and really fits the tone. Um, I, I recommend Batwoman. It's a good. It's a really good DC comic. Black Magic uh, by Greg Rucker and, and Nicola Scott. I really missed Black Magic while it was away. Um, I know Rucker and Scott were off doing you know great things with Wonder Woman. I I really enjoyed their run on Wonder Woman, and I and I definitely you know I'm very glad they got to go and make that money. I think that's awesome. Um, but I love Black Magic, and I'm so glad it's back. It's a police procedural, uh, but the the main protagonist is a witch. Uh, it's the artwork is beautiful, a gorgeous monochrome artwork by Nicholas Scott that breaks into color whenever magic is used, it, which is uh, such a good idea. Um, I highly recommend it. If you haven't read Black Magic, get the first arc, which is available as as a collection for about six pounds, I think, something like that. Um, it's so good. It's really, really good. There's only we've only got one issue so far of the second arc out, so there's not a lot to catch up with. Read it. Bug: The Adventures of Forager, uh, which is a mini series that's part of the Young Animal line. I like this. It's by the entire Olred family, written by Lee Olred, drawn by Mike Olred, colours by Laura Olred. Um, it's a to be honest, it's a bit of a, a sort of a, a, a comics folly. Uh, basically a, a, a miniseries that's all in, entirely just made up of Kirby references. It's just a, a big old Kirby homage. Um, in terms of story, there's not a lot to really get your teeth into. No great emotional hook to hang yourself on and actually... Well, that was a poor choice of words. To hang your, your interest on. Let's put it that way. Um, it's not... Yeah, it's not grabbing me by the heart, you know, but uh, but I'm enjoying the sort of nerdy feeling of it, and it's very pretty to look at, you know, Michael Ridd's great. Um, maybe when we get to the final issue, maybe it will wrap things up in a way that, that kind of makes it feel a bit more satisfying. Maybe it will just be a collection of enjoyable references, I don't know, but, um, but it's nice to look at. Uh, G.I. Joe by Aubrey Citizen and... Uh, I, I know I'm go- I know I'm pronouncing this wrong. Giannis Milano Giannis. Um I'm 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 a hundred percent sure I'm saying that wrong. Um G.I. Joe is is fantastic. It's fun, over the top action. Uh the the uh plot moves along like a freight train. There's um intrigue within the team. Um the the artwork is gorgeous and kinetic. There is a Decepticon on the G.I. Joe team. Uh, they are fighting giant monsters escaping from the core of the earth. Um, there's an evil cult that's possessing people. It's it's great. Like there there even seems to be a sort of uh, possibly a burgeoning gay romance between a redneck and a Decepticon plane. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I, I I love it. I love G.I. Joe. I highly recommend it. It's so much fun. Stumptown is on my subscriptions because, as I understand it, it is coming back. Hasn't come out for ages. Rook has been busy. Uh, I love Stumptown, though. 
Aliens Dead Orbit. Uh, James Stokoe's uh, Aliens miniseries uh, captures the feeling of the original Alien movie um, and uh, brings Stokoe's magic to it. This feels very much of a piece with his work on Godzilla a few years ago um, in that it really captures the spirit of the original um, while telling a new story that w- that feel that you know works with that same tone but that is also is showing off how brilliant Stoko is as a writer and as a storyteller and as a cartoonist um there are very few people in comics certainly of his generation who have Stoko's uh, sheer all-round skill in terms of making comics um if you want to see someone just really show you how it's done uh, read aliens dead, dead orbit if you like aliens read aliens dead orbit it's great. Cave Carson has a cybernetic eye. Is a young animal book of the young animal on the four central young animal ongoing series. It's probably it's not my least favourite, but it's nearly there. Um, I mean that's not a terrible situation to be in. To be fair, I like all of the young animal books, but there are times when I find this one a little hard to follow. I think it could do with slightly tighter editing, both on the writing and the art, because sometimes it just loses me, um, and I don't think that's my fault, to be honest. Um, it is, however, very pretty. The story is very intriguing. I'm really enjoying Mad Dog being part of the the whole thing. Um, yeah, it's psychedelic, uh, stylish, and and weird. Um, I I do like it. I just yeah, I, I find I've ver- I'm very rarely able to finish an issue in one sitting. Kill or Be Killed by uh, Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips is a comic by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. Uh, it has uh, the best colouring in comics currently by uh, Betty Brightweiser. She is the best colourist currently working in comics, in my opinion. Um, and it's a comic by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. Either you like those or you don't. I do. I think they're fantastic. Um, but if you don't, you know, at this point, I can't imagine anyone who regularly reads comics not having read some Criminal or some Fatal or some Incognito. Uh, you know whether you like that or not. Um, this is like that. Sex Criminals. Sex Criminals is Sex Criminals is Sex Criminals. Matt Fraction and Chip Zdarsky are both brilliant at what they do. Um, the comic is by turns deep, funny, touching, um, moving, um, thoughtful. It's incredibly well made and it comes out about once a century. Um, I like it a lot. I have felt like the last couple of issues seem perhaps a little lost about where they're, go- where they're going, but I felt that before and it's always brought me back. Shade the Changing Girl is my least favourite Young Animal ongoing series. Um, it's brilliant. It's brilliantly written. It's uh, you know very smartly written. Uh, gorgeously drawn. Written by Cecil Castellucci. Drawn by Marley Zarcone. Um, you know t- on a technical level, it's one of it's it's you know one of the best comics currently coming out. Um, it's about a a girl from you know, a young woman from another dimension who has decided to escape to our dimension uh, and has done in order to do so is has possessed the body of a girl, a teenage girl in a coma who it turns out is an awful person and so she has to deal with the social fallout of her host body's previous actions. It is a soap opera. I am not a fan of soap opera. As a result, I haven't read the last three issues. Um, at some point, I am going to make an effort to try and catch up. And depending on how that goes, I'm either going to cancel my subscription or continue. We'll see. Um, I do recommend Shade the Changing Girl. I don't know if I'm going to keep going with it. Shipwreck by Warren Ellis and Phil Hester is the platonic ideal of a Warren Ellis comic. 
a grumpy old man with a weird sci-fi origin story wanders around a fallen world and uh, kinds of ha- kind of has adventures happen to him against his will, often involving uh, really capable and intimidating young women. I mean, you know, that's what you want from Warren Ellis, really, isn't it? Um, and it's drawn by Phil Hester, who is a fucking fantastic artist. Um, yeah. If that sounds good, read it. I I really like Shipwreck. Southern Bastards by Jason Aaron and, and Jason Latour. Um, I can't imagine you don't know what this comic is. Um, I really, really like it. Uh, there are elements of it that really ring true for me. Um, I, the, the, the the moral compromises and the, uh, the, the character types of people dealing with sort of extreme poverty in certain situations are things, you know, that really... Yeah, I think it's a really good comic. I really like Southern Bastards. Southern Cross is, uh, my best description of this is, what imagine if Alien and Event Horizon uh, were the same film and they were directed by uh, John Carpenter and uh, David Cronenberg working together yeah, you, you got you imagining that, you picture that, you got a feel for what that would be like, yeah, that's Southern Cross um, it's written by Be- Becky Cloonan who has a real sort of a, a writerly voice that's very sort of blood and guts and 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 grime and 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 you know very plot oriented, very propulsive uh, and, and tough uh, that I really enjoy um, and the artwork by uh, Andy Belanger 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 I don't know how to pronounce his name. Um, he uh, is very reminiscent of uh, Brett Ewins, which I like a lot. Very sort of clean line, working in a very sort of stylized way. If you're not familiar with Brett Ewins, uh, other um, other people with a similar sort of style might be uh, Jim Steranko is not a million miles away, or. Um, Oh, there's a guy whose name I can't remember, so I'm not going to say. But um, yeah, it's quite sort of stylized, but very detailed um, sci-fi art, uh, ably coloured by Lee Lowridge, who is also a fantastic colorist. Uh, Winnebago Graveyard by Steve Niles and Alison Sampson is the tale of a young family who are have become stranded uh, in a small rural town that is occupied by a monstrous Satanist cult who want to sacrifice them to their evil blood god. Uh, yeah, I mean, either you're in or you're out after hearing that, I think. Um, the artwork is so good. Um, Alison Sampson is amazing. Alison Sampson is one of the, the like Alison Sampson is the best artist I know. She is amazing. Uh, you know, you should check out Winnebago Graveyard if just to look at it. Um, Doom Patrol, uh, my second favourite uh, young animal book is uh, it's Doom Patrol. It's written by Gerard Way, uh, drawn by Nick Darrington with uh, fantastic colours by Tamara Bonvillain. Um, it, it feels very much of a piece with the old uh, Grant Morrison Doom Patrol. It's fun, it's clever. Um, that I, I get a real strong emotional connection to the characters already, um, including the newest ones. Um, yeah, I really like Doom Patrol. It's good. You're probably already reading it. Mother Panic is my favourite young animal book, written by Jodie Hauser with uh, the best artwork that uh, in any month that Mother Panic comes out. Uh, it's a, it, it's um, the the main rotating artists are John Paul Leon, um, Tommy Lee Edwards, and Sean Crystal, uh, all of whom are incredible. Uh, on top of that, Mother Panic is the best co- best Batman comic currently being published. It's just that this Batman is a uh, very young woman. Um, I love Mother Panic. If you like Batman, read Mother Panic. Read Mother Panic. Read Mother Panic. Here's an idea: read Mother Panic. It's fantastic. I love that comic. 
Suicide Squad. Suicide Squad is the most fun I have each issue it comes out. It's most fun I have reading comics right now. Uh, it's by Rob Williams and whoever's drawing it this month. Um, the, the plot is like a runaway train. Um, it's funny, it's violent, it's silly, it's dark, it's... Um, <sighs> I don't know. I don't know what to say. It's pulpy. It's it, it's unpredictable. It's um, it feels like a 2000 AD strip. It really does. It feels not just any. It feels like an old 2000 AD strip. Um, I really, really enjoy Suicide Squad. Um, I don't know if I could re- recommend jumping in with it where it is right now. I think you kind of have to go back to the beginning because, as I say, it's a runaway train. It's just nuts. And it comes out about every three days, I think. Um, I really like Suicide Squad. So that's... Well, I really like all of these, don't I? I keep saying that. Oh, I like this. I like that. That's why I'm subscribed to them. Yeah. So there you go. That's my Comixology subscriptions at the moment. That should give you an idea of what I'm reading. More DC than, than it has been for a while. Um, you know... I'd, I would quite like to start reading a bit more IDW. I think the uh, the GI Joe has me very interested in that kind of in that Hasbro universe. Um, I have been dipping into some of the Transformers stuff, sort of very tentatively. That seems like a deep well to fall into, though. So I'm being careful there. Um, yeah, some cool stuff around. All right. Okay. Anyway, I've been going on long enough. I should probably stop recording now. All right. Uh, great to have the podcast back. See you all next week. Damn it, I've told David about running so long. How am I supposed to run a podcast around gigantic uh, contributions like that one? Uh, by God, he's dashing. And he really does get results uh, when it comes to talking about comics. Uh, next up is Max Barnard. He's uh, been contributing to uh, this show and uh, the show he did before it for bloody ages. He's uh, since he was very young, and by goodness, I love him. He's a, a gorgeous, gorgeous young man. Um, he's basically like if you had a really majestic bird, like a, an eagle or a, 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 you know how you look at seagulls and they're kind of uh, stamping around and they look a bit uh, uh, angry and cranky and uncertain of themselves they're just they're so ungainly when they're on the ground but you know that like they're huge and they've got that little red bit on their beak and if they flew uh, which they do i mean obviously they do do they're not flightless i'm not a fucking idiot since you quite often see them stomping around don't you um when they fly they almost look majestic except for that annoying noise they make and max doesn't make annoying noise my point is he's like a glorious bird uh, but a glorious bird that's racked by, um, by self-doubt and, uh, and, uh, uh, and his demons. Uh, but I know that, that once he overcomes them, he's going to shock and surprise us all and probably change the world for the better. Uh, here's a little thing, um, a little, uh, bit of Max trivia. It's not that my son is called Max. Uh, and I like to pretend that he's named after Max, even though he isn't. That's not it. Although that is a piece of Max trivia. Another piece of Max trivia. I always used to think that he talks this loud normally. You're going to hear it in a minute. Uh, uh, not this loud, this fast. I always thought he talked this uh, fast and and confidently, um, just uh, just naturally. But it turns out he's really, really heavily scripted. And also he cuts out all the spaces between the words. Uh, so it makes him sound very fast, 
uh, almost uh, almost as if he's affecting the patter of a uh, uh, 1920s vaudeville person, uh, but talking about manga, which is what, what he's about to do. Hello there, it's a brand new day for We Have Issues, and reintroductions are probably in order. I'm Maxi B, long-time contributor and manga specialist, which basically just means that when you hear my voice, it's almost always going to be for something related to Japanese comics. This could be something more esoteric, or it could be something more focused, like today's feature, which is an entry in The History of Manga, a series where I previously summarised the events and cultural history that led to Japanese comics, as well as kind of explaining what Japanese comics are and what comics are. Uh, But I use it now, or will be using it now, to profile certain creators' works and events from the past century to better inform you all as to the particular corner of comics I love. This won't necessarily be in a chronological order. It'll pretty much just be whatever interests me this week uh, or fortnight or whatever the schedule is I end up doing on these. But regardless, I'd like to think they'll be the sort of thing you'll find at least passingly interesting, perhaps enough so to go and buy the English edition of something uh, whenever appropriate. Today we're going to be talking about one of the first true pioneers of comic strips in Japan, Mashiko Hasegawa, and her long-running strip, Suzai-san, which uh, is pretty, pretty important. It's a pretty important one. You might say it's like one of the two biggest ones we're going to talk about. I might not talk about it in the biggest detail, but I just want you to understand the the scale of what we're going to talk about. Let's begin. Let's begin. Let's begin. Mashiko Hasegawa was born in 1920 and was drawing cartoons from the pretty young age of 15, but her biggest success, the series that ultimately defined her, created her legacy and inspired generations upon generations of comic creators, was her strips as I sound, which began its run in a local paper in 1946 before blowing up nationally in 1949 and running daily until Hasegawa's retirement in 1974. The series was a yonkoma, or four-panel comedy strip, uh, something that uses the comedic structure of Kishoten Kesu, but we'll talk more about that in a future episode, I'm sure, because that kind of takes us through the history of uh, classical Chinese, Korean, and Japanese narratives. So, you know, a bit complicated for a profile. But yes, the strip followed the eponymous Suzai-san as she... Look, right, I'm not going to actually summarise 28 years of daily strips here, so let's cover the basic ideas. You know, it's got her, like, dressing up in kimonos, looking for a husband, finding a husband, having a kid, becoming a feminist, dealing with her family, playing board games, working in an office, and generally avoiding a world of modern convenience. Hasegawa had no desire to depict the increasingly modernised world of Japan with its fast food and theme parks and stuff that slowly appeared over time. And as such, like, Suzai-san has, like, the main character and her family existing in a world where they would only have, like, the sort of the rare convenience of something like a washing machine or a refrigerator or a taxi service. It operated as a sort of soft comedic oasis, an escape from a world that Hasegawa could observe around her. I, I think that's really interesting. I like the idea of a strip that isn't necessarily a period piece, but by not really having the characters age at the same pace as us, not really having to keep them modern and current, which we'll learn with other 
like famous series in Japan's history would really, really do great at keeping current. Like Sazai-san instead just gives us a nostalgic flashback to this this nice this nicer time. Hasegawa herself was something of a feminist as well, a fiercely independent woman who never married and who refused to compromise her life's work, maintaining a tight control over Sazai-san in her life, and ensuring this cartoon was made for a public station where sponsorship or corporate involvement weren't going to affect what went on to become the longest-lasting part of her legacy. Sazai-san's cartoon, or anime, uh, short for animation, started airing in 1969 and is still going today, airing in the same 6.30pm Sunday slot that it always has, bringing the adventures of Sazai and her family to a massive amount of Japanese households every week. You might be thinking, that's got to be a record of some sort. And you'd, you'd be right. Sazai-san is a Guinness world record holder, a notable feature in the big book of things people used to want to know about before Google, and holds the record for longest running animated television series, with somewhere in the vicinity of 7,500 episodes aired so far. And not really with any sign of stopping. That's, that's huge. Like, this is a sort of show where because of its time slot and the way people talk about it, you might hear people be like, oh, it's like Japan's The Simpsons. F off, is it? That's... We don't have a comparative point to that. Maybe, like, a soap opera or something might have a similar run. And there are longer-running soap operas in in Japanese television as well, I think. Like, But Sazai-san is just beyond large. It is... It is unconquerable. I can't imagine another TV show in our modern life that will ever, ever catch up to the achievements Sazai-san's got there. Mashiko Hasegawa and Sazaya-san, as such, aren't just an interesting profile in manga history. They're one of the most important things to ever happen to manga, and anime at that. What a legacy to have. The, the people they've inspired, the, the kids who've grown up watching this generation after generation after generation. It's, it's mind-boggling, the, the sheer scale of what was accomplished by Hasegawa with this series is amazing. And if you want to see why it managed to be so big, like what made it such a long-lasting series, Kadansha have published a selection of Sazai-san in English back in the late 90s in bilingual editions that not only give you a translated taste of uh, Japan's biggest comic strip, but also along the side of the page, on each page, it would have the, the Japanese text, which serves as a weirdly useful tool for anyone wishing to learn written Japanese. They are out of print at present, which is a bit of a problem, but they can be found on places like Amazon's Marketplace for around the price of a coffee, or sometimes two coffees, sometimes like half a coffee. Coffee as podcasts have taught you, our, our coffee is the best way of judging the value of something. Pow. It's coffee. <laughs> I have a, a sneaking suspicion Max actually puts quite a lot of work into his contributions in terms of like preparation and, and research and stuff, which is... Kind of, uh, he's not the only 
contributor who does that. I suspect most of them do, but it kind of makes a mockery of my, uh, like quickly reading a book before the podcast and then, then trying to, trying to string together a coherent thought about it later. I, um, I think that Max was one of the people who, uh, whose early contributions to the show made me realize, uh, what, what they could be, which is kind of cool. I might just be blowing smoke up his ass, actually. I suspect it was probably all my idea, um, and entirely, uh, uh, uh my, uh, uh, innovation and imagination that, that drove the whole thing. But it helps keep people motivated if you make them feel like they were involved. So, um, so anyway, next up, the Robert Headley, uh, Robert's one of our newer con- contributors. He's been listening to the show for a really long time. But he's still a little bit of a mystery to me. He's kind of a very mysterious figure to me. I, I don't know much about him. He's uh, he's very uh, engaged and very uh, nice and very insightful. He's very nice about the show, but I don't I don't know much about him. And part of that is that I am not uh, as an individual very good at asking about people. But part of it is that he's a he's quite an enigmatic character anyway. Very, uh, sort of in the shadows, uh, like, uh, 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 like he's shrouded in a sort of a, uh, a sort of a shroud of, uh, plastic bubble wrap mystery. I keep saying mystery, but it's that mysterious. And you're thinking, well, why is he, why is he wrapped up in bubble wrap? That's, that's weird. Is there some reason why he's wrapped up in bubble wrap? Or, uh, or is he literally just doing it so people will look at him and think he's weird and actually he's quite normal but he he wants that that level of um sort of that extra level of interest you know a, a bit like Russell Brand you know he's not really like that all the time it's just he wants people to look at him doesn't he he wants people to pay attention to him i, I don't think robert robert's anything like russell brand but I, I do wonder about the bubble wrap i'm not sure what that's all about and I'm, I'm worried that it's an affectation and I've just been, I've just been drawn in by a, a really cynical attempt to create this, uh, this uh, mythology around him. And anyway, he's going to talk about a, uh, a comic by one of my favorite writers, uh, but not one of his, uh, works that I've read loads of. So here he is. Hello, we have issues. This is Robert and it is good to be back. Today, I'm going to be taking a look at the Young Justice comic book series, written and drawn by Peter David and Todd Naik, respectively. This comic is mostly a comedy, which is what I like. I can deal with serious drama, and there are certainly comics that play that up that I like, but at the end of the day, I'm probably going to prefer a well-done comedy to a well-done drama. That's not to say this is purely a comedy. There are some serious moments in this book, and they actually manage to work. Because the characters are three-dimensional characters even when they're mucking around and telling jokes. And so you care about them. And so even in serious situations where they're joking, you feel stuff for them. And you care about these characters, and you want them to get out of that, and you occasionally want them to just shut up. But you're supposed to. The characters in the series range from the incredibly well-known Robin and Superboy to the less well-known but still pretty A-list, or at least B-list, impulse, to characters that basically only appear in this series. 
There's a ghost girl secret whose backstory is mysterious. There's Arrowette, the archer character that every team in the DC universe needs, who actually retires about tw- 20 issues into the series and manages to go the rest of the series, never unretiring, which is impressive for, a, you know, a comic series where characters getting to retire is basically unheard of. And because she pretty much only exists in this comic, she made a couple guest appearances in a comic before this. She never actually unretires officially. According to Wikipedia, there's a Wonder Girl mini where she puts on the costume for a one-off thing, but that's it. A character actually got to retire in a superhero comic. I mean, that's impressive just on its own. And you managed to care about both groups. You know, Robin and Superboy and Impulse and Wonder Girl, who I didn't mention until now, they never hog the spotlight. They're never the main characters. This is an ensemble piece where everyone gets to play. Honestly, I'm not sure what characters had it worse. The ones who finish this series and go on to basically never appear again, or the ones who finish this series and go on to be in Jeff Johns' Teen Titans run. This comic is one of my favourite series, and I did only just finish it recently, so that may have something to do with it, but I'm not sure it does. Now, I'm biased towards comedy series, so that may have something to do with it, but I think it's more to that. I think it's the fact that this is a 56-issue series, and most of it doesn't feel like filler. There's some tie-ins to events, and there's a Supergirl crossover that seems to exist, mostly because Peter David was also writing Supergirl at the time. But apart from that, and even occasionally during some of those events, it all feels like it's building towards something. Most of what it's building towards never actually gets to go anywhere, because Jeff Johns comes along and shuts the book down so he can run his Teen Titans book with a bunch of much less interesting versions of half the cast, but it was building towards something, and you can tell that's happening, because there's a really big moment about five issues from the end that never gets to go anywhere, because two issues after that, they have to wrap everything up. It's a shame, but I don't think it necessarily detracts from the whole of the series. I still think it's worth checking out, even if some of the plot lines are left a bit dangling. So, that's my review of Young Justice. Very funny, very good, ending falls a little flat. Or, no that's not true, the actual ending's really good. It's just some of the characters don't get the endings they were going to get at some point. Because Peter David plays the long game. But I still recommend this. If nothing else, the first 21 issues are available for a dollar each on Comixology. The first issue's free, so you can check that out. So, with that, back to the studio. Uh, Thanks to Robert for that, and for his continued loyalty and patronage and love. It's always nice when a long-time listener becomes a friend. That's cool. There's Okay, so if you haven't listened to the podcast before, even if you've just forgotten what I'm like... Generally, when uh, when I, I'm trying to say something sincere, it ends up coming out sounding a bit sarcastic. And when I'm trying to be sarcastic, people often think I'm being sincere. I'm not sure what that's all about. It might be neurology. It might be that people just don't listen very well. Uh, but, but I try not to victim blame on that front. But um, but but I meant what I just said about Robert. Uh, I like him a great deal. And finally, uh, Peter Hammerson, who I also like a great deal 
Uh, he's going to, as David did, talk about his uh, his comic reading habits at the moment. Um, Peter is uh, a chap who I love following on Twitter, uh, partly because I just like him, but also because uh, he is he's the sort of He's the sort of comic reader, well, just the sort of person in general, really, but the sort of comic reader that I, I, I almost wish I could, I could be, really. Uh, I've, I've never understood, I've never really been able to feel this 80s nostalgia thing, or this nostalgia for, um, childhood that a, a lot of, uh, people seem to have. But I do have this, um, this, uh, ongoing, uh, love and fondness for the comics I, I read at the time, and it's quieter. I think it's quieter than I. I don't need. I don't need new stuff of those comics. Uh, but I. Uh, I love thinking about the the comics I read in the eighties, and um, late seventies, and the TV and stuff like that. And when you follow Peter, what you get is this constant. It's like he's constantly dipping into um, his own. Uh, historic past in comics but also um that of uh that of just comics in general i think he's discovering a lot of this stuff for the first time a lot of uk comics but just generally uh like comics in general and it and it's uh it's all sort of uh it's kind of this almost this persistent wallpaper of um him just sharing the stuff he's experiencing and and uh sharing comic art and comic covers and 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 bits and bobs of stuff like that that I really like um and it isn't just nostalgia tripping but it it, it my relationship with nostalgia is very strange like I don't like it as a it makes me really uncomfortable as sort of a dominant dominant culture or um or you know as a as a cultural movement in its own right but at the same time, I, Peter will, uh, uh, share on Twitter a, uh, a comic cover that maybe that he's just discovered or that, that he's found in his, uh, loft or whatever from the 1980s that I haven't seen in over 30 years. And I'll remember it and I'll love it. And I'll get that same endorphin rush because back then everything was so scarce and comics were so difficult to come by that you would you would just reread them constantly you'd you'd pour over every every page of them and and I'd I'd memorize the covers and stuff like that and following peter is a real like it it's um there's an element of cultural archaeology to it as well but also that familiarity and just his tone is lovely and uh, and also he's a toastmaster and I didn't I don't think I really know what a Toastmaster is. I know that it's like talking, but it's like the version of... It's like talking, but it's like the version of talking that's like those guys who who um, who uh, go around at restaurants and do like close-up magic tricks. I, I feel like that's... I feel like the tuxedos are involved some somehow. And people looking very smart and being very uh, pr- practiced and good at what they're doing. And... Um, and he mixes that with an insight that, like, I really like. I, um, the thing I like about the contributions we have on the show, uh, and just doing the show with other people when, when it's in the studio with James and, um, uh, and Jane and, 
and John sometimes is um, th when people say stuff and you kind of wish I kind of wish that I could be more like them, but at the same time they have insights and uh, and delivery that I I know I could also never do, and that's the case with uh, pretty much all of our contributors, and I love it. And uh, and so anyway, here's Peter. Hi, my name's Peter Hammerson, and I'm here to talk about comics. Firstly, I want to say welcome back to We Have Issues. It's been away for a few weeks, and it has been missed. But we're all back now, and, I, and I'm determined to do as much as I can to make comics as positive a place to be as possible. As this is a time for new beginnings, I decided that today I wanted to share with you all a bit about how I experience comics at the moment. We all have our own habits and schedules, and I think it's nice sometimes to think about the habits I've developed and what has shaped them. So in short, this is my typical week of reading comics. Now, Monday is weekly Shonen Jump Day. I started reading WSJ a few months ago now. I had dabbled with it before through the Viz app, and then again when it first appeared on Comixology, but I failed to get into this Japanese anthology comic both times. However, I was inspired by my fellow WHI contributor, Max Barnard, who regularly talks about the latest issue on Twitter. I am now a committed regular reader, although I am a few weeks behind, which is something I need to change. WSJ is a great comic. At its core, it's meant to be targeted at young male readers, and deals mainly in action and comedy strips, and it does that very well, and with huge variety. The current crop of Japanese series being translated for the English edition includes We Never Learn, which is a cute school comedy romance, Robot X Laser Beam. Now, considering there's no robots and no laser beams in the comic, and it's about golf, I'm amazed I enjoy it so much. The Promised Neverland is about a group of children being bred as food for demons, who escape from their captivity and now have to survive in this hostile, haunted earth. Finally, I do have to mention Food Wars, which is like Masterchef crossed with some very questionable sexual content, which sees especially delicious eel dishes causing people's clothes to explode off. There is some odd and sometimes very wrong stuff in Weekly Shonen Jump, but overall the stories are good and the art is almost consistently amazing. Now, Tuesday... Tuesday is Old Comic Book Day. I've become more and more interested in old British comics lately. Specifically, the sort of books that were appearing on newsagent shelves in the 1970s and 1980s. Battle, Valiant, Eagle, and of course the, uh, the toy franchise titles that were such a huge part of my childhood. Thanks to a couple of vendors down at the Wexford Town Market, I now have a small pile of mostly Eagle comics, and some lucky eBay bidding got me a complete run of the Marvel UK Action Force series. Combined with my pre-existing 2000 AD and Transformers collection, I now have quite a few comics living somewhere between their 40th and 30th anniversary. So I thought I'd read a bunch of them following their cover dates. My day for doing this should be Tuesday, although it often drags further into the week. Currently, I'm reading Transformers, Action Force and 2000 AD from 1987, 
as well as 2000 AD progs from 1982, 1997 and 2007, to give myself a good spread. As the rest of my UK collection is much more random, I'm reading what I have when the cover date rolls around. A recent examples would be uh, an issue of Lion and Thunder from 1972, and an issue of Eagle from 1987. Some of this reading is entirely without context, but even so it's really nice to look at this older comics work and see how it compares to the US and 2000 AD material from the same time that I'm more familiar with. If nothing else, it's inspired me to start to seriously build a collection of the 1980s Eagle. Wednesday. Of course, Wednesday is New Comic Book Day. My NCBD buying has been focused digitally for years now. My ideal routine is as follows. In the morning, 2000 AD should be waiting for me on the 2000 AD app and the Judge Dredd magazine once a month. I like to try and read those before work. Occasionally, there'll be a US release which I want to read as soon as possible. It'll be the latest event title or Transformers Lost Light generally. Now this involves me checking Comixology repeatedly until something appears. Now sometimes it'll crop up before I have to leave the house and sometimes it won't. But if, for example, the latest issue of X must read series is live before 8am, then you know I'll probably be a little late for work. During the day I'll jump on Comixology and browse the rest of the new releases and make my selection. Once I get home they are downloaded, and if I can spend the rest of the evening reading, I will. Among others I'm currently picking up some of the new X-Books, Generation X and Jean Grey are favourites. Also Squirrel Girl, Giant Days, The Wildstorm, and of course the Transformers books, Lost Light, Optimus Prime, and they soon to be cancelled till all are one. I'm quite sad to see that one go. Thursday is always a bit odd for me. The last time I had a proper pull list at a comic shop was back in the very early 2000s, and I, I remember back then a new comic book day was a Thursday. I'm sure it was always a Thursday. And even today, some part of that memory sparks up on a Thursday lunchtime, and I have an urge to walk over to Escape in Reading and ask for the contents of my box. Friday is a catch-up day. If I've been busy during the week, I'll have Jump, old comic books from the 80s and 2000 AD and the new releases all piled up waiting to be read. I just need to find some quiet time. Finally, we get to Saturday and Sunday. And if I've been keeping up with my weekday reading, then the weekend is time for me to dip into my collection and see what's good. Lately, I've been trying to make my way through X-Men from the 1990s. It's hard going at times, early issues of X-Force, I'm looking at you. But it's great to dive into this era, for the first time really. I know a lot about what happens in X-Men in the 90s of course, but, but up until Grant Morrison's run I've hardly actually read any of it. So that is my ideal week in comics. Old and new blended in exquisite, if not always perfect, harmony. Does anyone else have a schedule like this? Does anyone else even have a schedule? Is this a crazy thing that only I do? Well, you can let me know on Twitter, at, at Peter H, that's P-Y-T-Y-R-H. Now, I'm recording this on a Monday, so I'm off now to download the latest weekly Shonen Jump. Thanks for listening, and welcome back, We Have Issues. I like that sort of reflectiveness. Peter has a couple of um, uh, uh, series, contribution series, that he that he does do for us, and... Um, 
and, and it's worth going back and listening. Actually, uh, quite a few of our contributors do. Um, and you heard uh, Max talking about uh, the history of manga earlier on as well. It is worth going back and listening to their contributions from the past because we don't just talk about topical comics. I've uh, often in the past tried to make sure I've always got some new stuff to read uh, and talk about um, and trying to stay abreast of uh, current comics has actually sometimes made it more difficult to do the show because there'll quite often be weeks where I haven't loved everything I've read or or the culture of comics and that surrounds comics has has kind of ruined the stuff that's coming out for me at the moment a little bit so um so yeah it isn't always about this week's comics and actually i think uh we quite often talk about graphic novels and and uh collected works from the past and that's what i'm going to do now i'm really not going to talk about it very much though uh i read uh i think for the first time uh i read uh will eisner's uh, a contract with god and other tenement stories um and I think Will Eisner is someone that, that he's a cartoonist that so much has been said about and so much has been written about and I haven't read most of it. Um, and uh, also I've always had a bit of a problem reading older stuff because th the thing about Will Eisner's work is it's pretty clear that uh, he is pretty much a master at the form of comics. Um, and also you can sort of see if you know, if, if you know a lot of older comics, you can see where his influence is, but you can also see who he's influenced as well, which is most people, to be honest, most, uh, most people working in comics. Um, but it is his works. Uh, a lot of his work's very specific to a time and a very particular sort of voice. And what he's doing, uh, certainly in this book, in A Contract with God, well, I mean, he did the spirit. He's done, he's done pulp and genre comics and, and stuff like that. Um, but in this book, A Contract with God, what he's doing is a sort of an almost a documentary reportage style thing. He, he makes a lot in the, in the foreword, um, and the presentation of it about the fact that these are stories from his youth. In, uh, in, in New York, um, uh, and my history's not great. It's the 1930s, which I guess is the Great Depression. Um, and, and it's a, it's quite an insight into that time, but also because of people like Will Eisner, um, who, who pull the, uh, the form of comics forward, who progress it by their work. Comics have actually progressed beyond the sort of stories he's telling and the sort of treatment he's 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 using of them. So the characterization in a lot of these stories is very basic. Um, everything's written in a, a sort of a a, a patter that um, is probably uh, very reflective of the time uh, being presented, but also. Uh, a, probably a great example of the time when this comic of comics at the time this was made and stories and films um at the time this was, this was made but it all seems a bit campy now to me and because of that there are also like one of the uh one of the stories fair warning one of the stories in here 
is uh, while it's actually not particularly regressive for the time, um, there isn't loads of female representation, but at the same time, the female characters aren't treated particularly badly most of the time. Um, you know, if that's your, if that's your hope is that they're not treated particularly badly rather than they be treated well. But there is, um, a sequence in one of the stories, um, that deals with rape and, while I suspect Eisner's views were probably quite progressive in the for someone who grew up in the era he did. Just that just there's something about the way it's all presented that left a bad taste in my mouth. It's sort of a it comes off as a bit of a cautionary tale and it isn't entirely at the expense of the victim, but it's you know it it's hard to criticize Eisner for it specifically because it seems like at the time he wrote this story it will have been um, relatively progressive um, to even point at a crime like that and say this is a bad thing that's happened. It's just a little bit odd for a modern reader, especially one who has a bit of trouble um, separating the context of the time out of things like I do. But it's a, it's a fascinating read uh, as much because of just seeing how he tells a story. It's, uh, I think Harvey Pekar, that I know there's, there's going to be loads of historical, um, uh, predecessors to this and, uh, and, uh, and people who followed after it. But the main thing I've read is Harvey Pekar. And, and it's that, it's that way of telling a story. It's a very sort of uh, matter of fact way of telling stories. While also having this uh, this tempo to it that um, is almost musical in uh, in the prose and and the way the stories are told, there's a, a movement to it. And uh, um, one thing that uh, one thing that a contract with God really does do and uh, does evoke really well through the art and um, through the writing is this sense of New York as a place. Um, and the rundown parts of New York and how those parts of New York got rundown, uh, uh, during, during this wave of rundownedness that was the 1930s. I know it's been through a few phases of, uh, of this. Um, and Eisner's art is, is gorgeous. I don't, I don't think I had noticed because the spirit is pretty slick. And the main thing that you always remember about the spirit, not you necessarily, listener, but I always remember about the spirit is the typography. That's the thing that people always point out and that so many people have been influenced by the way that he incorporates, um, like graphic elements, uh, of the comic presentation, like the title, the spirit into the background and, and plays around with stuff like that, plays around with form like that. Uh, but the art in this is really loose and the, I don't think I'd ever really registered, um, that there was such a close link between the, uh, art I saw in old, uh, comics like Mad Magazine and stuff like that. I guess Harvey Kurtzman and people like that. Um, and, uh, the, uh, comics, uh, written by Harvey P. Carr and, uh, and, 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 um, R. Crumb's work later on. And looking at a contract with God and looking at Will Eisner's work in this and the way he draws faces and the, um, the, uh, the, the style that I'm used to seeing in, um, I'm used to seeing in comedy comics, 
but that actually I suspect was used in horror and stuff at, at the time as well because it's really dramatic. It's a really dramatic style. Lots of very dramatic facial expressions and body language and and stuff like that. Really bold lines and really bold composition of pages and and of panels as well. Um, I I hadn't registered from looking at all of the spirit stuff how close to the comedy comics, the humour comics I've read, his style is. And I don't know where the influence were, I don't know which way round which way round that went, and it'd probably be really easy to find out, I don't know. The other thing that struck me about this, so I didn't uh, what I got more from this book because the stories themselves, like I said, they're they're vignettes and they're stories that would probably have been really important to read uh, years ago, but he's been so influential and, and, and the way stories are told has moved on so much that now sometimes they seem quite trite. Um, but is, is reading Will Eisner talking about comics in the front? And I haven't, I haven't read his, um, I didn't read his preface deeply enough because I realized very, very quickly, um, very, very quickly that it was going to be a lot more dense and information heavy than I was expecting. That this, uh, this is a guy, that Will Eisner is a guy who, um, a cartoonist who really, really was thinking about, um, thinking about the form and thinking about comics, not just, not just thinking hard about the way he was doing comics and the way people around him were doing comics at the time. He, he seems to, he seems to have had a stated interest in the future of the form and, and the recognition of comics as an art form. Um, in a way that at times reads a little bit pretentious, but actually, uh, is, is something that's probably, it's really important to have him there doing that. Um, because it, Because I, d- I don't think I really realised that people were talking about comics like that back when Will Eisner was working uh, on this stuff in particular. And I actually bol- borrowed uh, a contract with God from the library at work. I didn't realise they had uh, they had graphic novels in there, and I borrowed this and a book of interviews that uh, Will Eisner did with other comic creators, which I'm quite eager to start start like dipping into uh but the other thing that the other reason i've wanted to talk talk about this book as loosely as i have been for the last couple of weeks since i picked it up is um it's actually from the introduction by denny o'neill and denny o'neill bloody loves will eisner and he actually says that he didn't think he'd like this book and he loves will eisner so he was really reticent about doing the um introduction for it but actually loved it in the end anyway it's a good uh, it's a good introduction he says one particular thing about um criticism which is very prescriptive and i don't necessarily agree with it as the whole thing but as a, a little piece of brain machinery for thinking about pr- criticism, I think it's excellent. And it isn't even his words. He's quoting Go- Goeth, Goeth, G-O-E-T-H-E. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Um, when he says that 
Ghost's critical, uh, I'm really convinced I'm pronouncing that wrong. Never mind. Uh, Goeth's critical dictum remains the best. The critic can only decide what the artist was trying to accomplish and whether he succeeded. And then he says, by that standard, a contract with God is a near masterpiece, which is fine, and it's fine. Um, but that thing, the critic can only decide what the artist was trying to accomplish and whether he succeeded. Is... It's one of those ideas that I'd, I, I think that we talk about, or not talk about, but it's like a, it's a sort of an almost benevolent way of talking about, uh, comics and TV and, and shows like that that's very different from the way that people tend to talk about them online. Even I'm guilty of disliking something, so just bitching about it roundly because other people, um, don't seem to see the things I don't like about it. Which is why, actually, I try to avoid doing that here on the show. But, um... And, of course, it's it's important to have your own opinion about things. And if, um... And have your own feelings about things. And if, uh... I, I think one of the best ways to interface with... Um, reviews and criticism and podcasts and things like that is you find the people who you like the way they talk about stuff um, and maybe you approximately agree with them uh, most of the time or you approximately disagree with them most of the time but in a way that their points always point you at things that you know you're going to end up enjoying all of those things um, but but this place where there's no idea of definitive good and definitive bad um, works and uh, th- there's uh, no point arguing with a journalist, not a journalist, there's no point arguing with a reviewer or someone like that about them saying they they didn't like something um, because uh, there are plenty of other journalists who... Um, who will have liked that thing, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter, none of it really matters, they're just saying they like it. Um, I've lost my point a little bit. I guess what I'm saying is, the thing I like about that Goethe quote, or Denny O'Neill quote, probably mispronouncing that as well, um, is that it does away with, it does away with the idea, one of the things that really bugs me, um, and, my examples are contentious. I won't use Zack Snyder as an example. But I believe you could use the Wachowskis as an example of this, or Guillermo del Toro, or Damon Lindelof, or any number of other people. When people criticise their work for being bad, but then their main criticisms of it are that it's incoherent, or there's no... or, or they don't agree with the character progression, or or it doesn't have this element that Robert McKee's story says you're supposed to have in something, or it doesn't do this, that um, Campbell's uh, story cycle has in it, or or, or any of those things. Um, that sort of criticism of something, as a definitive, as a, well, this is why this is bad, this is why the this person is an idiot for making this thing, all kind of falls apart if that wasn't what they were trying to do in the first place, because there are so many different ways... <laughs> of telling a story. There are so many different ways of making art. The whole reason we have art movements, the whole ways that things progress, 
are people experimenting with the different ways of doing things. The cubists or whatever could easily be criticised, and I think they were uh, uh, criticised for uh, not doing proper pictures. But like, that's how you that's how you use a, a an art form that's designed f- as much for expression as it is for just delivering information. I'm not really sure what my point is, or uh, if I've even got a point, or if it's a valuable point if I do. Um, but I guess ultimately what I think is we probably need to overhaul our idea of what criticism is. Like People who take criticism to heart um, you know, artists and writers or fans who take criticism of the stuff they like to heart um, could do overhauling it. But just in general, this idea of criticism as this ob- objective gauge of of what a thing is, um, that's how you end up with scores out of 10 on things. And that's how you end up with things like Gamergate as well, where um, the people get this idea into their head that that we're supposed to use totally objective measures to talk about and metrics to talk about this stuff that, that the whole beautiful point of it is that it's subjective you know that different people are going to react to it different ways um that like will mean totally different things to different people anyway that's the the sort of talking about art and comics and TV and films and and books and everything that I find interesting getting an insight into what the uh, the person writing or talking um, felt about it um, because it, I, there's I don't know I just don't think objectivity is possible this isn't um, stuff that's that easily measurable. I don't think. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what makes a good podcast. I'm guessing some idiot rambling away at half two in the morning isn't one of those things uh, who undoes all of the good work of the other people who are on his podcast by um, by just gibbering away endlessly, uh, clearly not having really thought out what he was going to say about the book in advance um, or criticism in advance. Um, this is, this is an objectively bad, uh, way to try and make a point, isn't it? I did tell you I was miserable. And at this point, I look so much like, uh, angry, evil, old Salman Rushdie. Um, it's not even true. I'm glad I can't see myself. Uh, frankly, I feel very squinty and weird. Um, I think, I think I'm going to let you go. It's starting to feel like I've, got you held hostage if you're still listening at this point uh thank you so much for listening uh, i know it's been a really long time since um since we've had one of these out so uh thank you for your patience if you're a patron thank you for patronizing us uh, if you're not a patron but would like to show your appreciation in the form of money remember that's patreon.com forward slash totp you could also tell your friends about us maybe i mean even give them uh the the periods of the episode that you think they might get something out of tell them that like that the guy who presents it he's not even really talking between the the seven minute mark and 
the uh, 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 20-minute mark, which is probably David talking. Um, so just, you know, tell them just to listen to that. I don't know. I mean, if you think there's something valuable here or just interesting or fun or whatever, um, it's good to share, isn't it? It's really nice to share. Uh, remember, we're on Facebook and on Twitter and uh, do look up all of our contributors. Thanks to David and Robert and Max and Peter, um, who've also been incredibly patient with me uh, about about uh, us coming back. And uh, and hopefully uh, we'll be back for 120 next week. Thank you, listener. Bye-bye. <laughs>